This is Apologetic Live with Matt Slick and Andrew Rappaport, part of the Christian Podcast Community. All right, we are live, Apologetics Live. Uh, this is going to be a little bit of a different setup, if you can't figure it out. I'm not in my usual location. I hope the audio in all is going to go well. But uh, to let everybody know, a little bit different here. Uh, we are, if this is working well, and I'll check later, we should be on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube all at once. So hopefully that is... Uh, that is going to be working well. So let us know if you're watching on any of those so that we know where you're watching. And uh, if you can hear us, okay. Uh, we're going to be, I'm in uh, New York City um, trying to get out of this coast. I'll be headed out to California for the Truth Matters Conference. And okay, we got thumbs up from Twitter. Cool. So we know someone's there. Uh, this is going to be the first time we could do multiple streams. And so I don't know how well it's going to be working. <laughs> We're going to test it all out. Let me bring Eli in. And uh, hey, Eli, how are you? I'm doing well. Good. Well, we're going to be uh, having a little bit of fun tonight, I hope. Um, tonight, we're going to be reviewing a debate that you did on the Gospel Truth uh uh, show or network or whatever they are. Uh, they do a bunch of debates. And uh, so that hopefully is going to turn out well, or that debate's already over. So that did turn out well, but we hope that uh, for folks here that enjoy the post-debate discussion. Um, so Eli, real quick, why don't you just introduce uh, your ministry that you work for real quick for folks who uh, yes. may not know. Yeah. Well, my name is I have the How We Are to Defend the Faith. Um, I work for the Historical Bible Society as well, and I blog for them and do Facebook videos and things like that. So if people follow me on Facebook, they'll see uh, me put up little five-minute videos addressing some theological or apologetical issue. And um, that's that's it. I, I work a little bit with um, – well, I used to, I guess. I used to answer emails for Matt Slick, <laughs> but um, I, I'm unable to continue that at, at the moment. But uh, yeah, so I got my hands on a couple of things. I um, am a middle school, high school teacher at a Christian private school, um, and I teach the Bible classes there, and I teach apologetics for the seniors. And uh, my interests are obviously systematic theology, I like philosophy, and I like me issues of methodology. So um, this debate that I just recently did um, was my first moderated debate, and um, I just had a recent debate with a, a man by the name of Negation of P. He goes by that name, and that can be found on my uh, podcast, Revealed Apologetics, and it can be found on uh, YouTube on my Revealed Apologetics um, page there. I was invited by Modern Day Debates to have that one, and I think it went extraordinarily well, and so people can really benefit from the presuppositional method in practice um, by giving that one a, a listen. Okay. So, um, and folks, just let me, let me know those in the chat, if you can hear me. Okay. If you could hear Eli. Okay. Cause I don't have my regular setup to be able to check the levels. Um, so I want to also make sure we could play 
I'm going to uh, let me know that I want to play a little bit of the video and uh, see that we will, because we're going to start with your opening, the full thing. Uh, then we're going to play a clip of his opening. And when you tell me to stop, we'll stop that. And then we have a short clip of the cross examination that uh, we're going to interact with. So I want to first, I'm going to start with your opening. And folks, if anyone wants to join, just go to apologeticslive.com. You'll be able to join us there. And if you want to get in on the discussion, let us know what you think of the debate. I hope you all watched it. I put it out uh, early and mentioned that you may want to watch it there. So um, I, if anybody can't hear the audio when we hit the video, you'll have to let me know um, because I won't be able to know otherwise um, because I don't have my regular setup. So, <laughs> so I don't know how this is going to work. Um, we, I actually got here, Eli, to, to New York City um, about 30 minutes before we had to start. <laughs> <laughs> Were you in a hotel or something? No, I'm I'm at a I'm at an undisclosed location in New York City. <laughs> um, I'm I'm at a, in my in-laws' house, my sister-in-laws' house, and uh, they live close to the airport. So we'll we'll head out to the airport and head out to California. Uh, Saturday, I'll be out preaching with uh, Ray Comfort on the boardwalk or on the uh, pier there at Huntington Beach at about eleven fifteen, eleven thirty. Awesome. Uh, Sunday, we'll be at church with John MacArthur. Like, yeah, just a regular Sunday. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we'll get to go uh, to Grace Community Church on Sunday. Monday, I will be doing some uh, filming there at Living Waters. They got a new project they're working on, and I'll be I'll be there for about six hours doing filming. They're going to pepper me. They got about 60 questions for me to rattle through. And so uh, I have from 830 in the morning till like two or three in the afternoon to get through them all. And awesome. uh and then Tuesday, we'll get a tour of Grace to You. And after that, uh, Wednesday starts the conference. So we will then be at the conference. Then I fly up to Redwood City, California. That's up in the San Francisco area. I'll be preaching there at, uh, at uh, Grace Baptist Church in Redwood City on, uh, on Sunday. And then I come home to relax. What's the, uh, what's the conference about? Truth matters. It's about truth that matters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Some are calling it. Some are calling it. Answer the sixty questions like that, <laughs> and then you'll get through them very quickly. <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, I I'll have to see. Oh, by the way, Donald Jacks here was was saying. I'll put this comment up that he had that I was blaming you for being late. But he knows better. Is is that true? Was was I, I ready? At, was I ready at eight o'clock, or and you were not in here? <laughs> well, you were you were ready. I was I ready. Okay. Having some te technical difficulties on my end, so that was my, yeah. That that's my what mind. I said that I was waiting for you, and he's of course blaming me. All right. So let's let's. I want to play the opening, and uh, of this, if you guys can't hear it, then let me know right away. Because dead air won't be fun. Did actually were you guys were you able to hear the intro music? Are you talking to me? Yeah, or I anybody in chat? You did, I not. did not hear it. Okay, so that could become a problem. So, um, 
I wonder what I might be able to do to fix that while I'm here real quick. I guess what I could do is change my speaker. This may not sound as good as we would like, but I'm going to play it off the, we might get some echo, but I'm going to do this. And Eli, can you still hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, just checking to make sure. We might get some feedback, um, some echo, but I'm going to try to play it. Well, let me let me first play it. Um, some people, Donald, Donald Jack says he didn't hear the, the intro, I guess. So let me play this, and at least it'll play through. My microphone will pick it up. It'll just, uh, we'll have echo. So I'll play the intro here to uh, the first, uh, I think it's 10 minutes. Was it a 10 minute introduction? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So here is, uh, let me share screen. Um, where is, it's great when you know your setup and then you move to a different location, right? Yeah. yeah. All right, here we go. I wonder if, because we're sharing screen, if this is going to work, that the sound will work fine, but. Let's hit play. Of course, now I hear nothing. Um, let me just back it up. Tell me if you, are you hearing that, Eli? I can't hear the video. Okay. But I can, but I can hear you. All right. Let me pull this out altogether. Now we'll hear it. Um, no 60-minute discussion. Is going Does that to be sound okay? You guys are going to get three opportunities okay. each to go ahead and ask questions for 10 minutes. Okay. First. So here's, here is Eli's opening statement. And uh, um, I'd like to define the terms of this debate as I see it. Does God exist? And for me as a Christian theist, I deny the existence of any other God other than the Christian one. And so I'm going to be defending specifically Christian theism today. For I do not believe that any non-Christian can be coherent and not without detrimental philosophical problems once the details of these competing deities and or worldviews are fleshed out. And I do not find the non-Christian worldview systems to be rationally defensible as I find them unable to provide the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. And by way of kind of a quick summation, um, I do not find non-Christian worldview systems to be defensible in that they either have internal inconsistency problems or if we grant their hypothetical truth, such systems can be shown to undermine human reason and experience. Now, to the nature of the debate, as, as I understand it, um, we need to be very careful uh, since when we're engaging in debates over the question of God's existence, there is all too often the naive assumption that we can proceed in a tit-for-tat back-and-forth discussion over individual pieces of data, facts, or evidence. When in reality, uh, this debate is not an issue of facts absent of a worldview context. The debate between the Christian and the skeptic, or the Christian in any other form of the non-Christian position, is really a debate over worldview systems. And so if my opponent desires to discuss any particular point, I will politely remind him that any particular point of contention will only and can only have meaning and coherency within a broader worldview context. I do not believe that we can discuss any particular fact in some sort of neutral worldview independent fashion. And since my worldview foundation is in diametric opposition to any non-Christian foundation, I'm going to take issue with the interpretation of any particular point of contention taken on its own. 
For since we both will be operating from different worldview perspectives, different paradigms, if you will, it becomes foundational to this debate as to which position has um, a worldview context out of which the intelligibility and coherency of any fact is possible. So in quick summary, this debate is not over evidence per se, although I believe that my position has both evidence and a worldview context in which something like evidence even makes sense. But rather, our debate is one over competing worldviews. We're debating competing systems of thought and I having a Christian worldview and Chris having a non-Christian worldview. Now, there may be a temptation from the skeptical perspective to suggest that since they're taking the negative position, that there is therefore no requirement to put forth a defense, but rather the task is merely to evaluate the validity of the Christian's position. I'd like to point out that while I am happy to um, uh, admit that I am taking the, uh, the positive position, I'm making the positive assertion that the Christian God exists, I would also point out that every non-Christian perspective has explicit or implicit positive assertions of the falsehood of the Christian worldview. For instance, if the skeptic's position is to suggest that they do not know if the Christian God exists, this itself is implying the Christian worldview is false, since an important assertion of the Christian worldview is that in a very profound sense, all men know that God exists. Now the skeptic is free to reject this idea of all men knowing God in some sense, which I would imagine Chris would. But by rejecting this Christian proposition, he is saying, in essence, that the Christian worldview is false. And if this is his position, then we will need to engage in some intellectual sparring over worldviews. Or again, if the skeptic wants to take the tact of discussing particular facts that are neutral, or he wants to take the tact that it is even possible or even appropriate to come to these issues in a neutral fashion, he again would be implying the falsehood of the Christian worldview, which teaches that there is, in fact, no neutrality. For on the Christian worldview, every fact has its meaning in the ultimate definer of fact, which is God himself. So every fact is what it is because God has created these facts to be what they are. And hence, if someone defines a fact that is contrary to how God has sovereignly defined that fact, then I would argue that the person redefining that fact contrary to God's definition is wrong and does not understand that fact truly. So in essence, my point here is that no fact is the nature of this debate is not over piecemeal issues, but rather over worldview systems, which themselves give particular facts their meaning. But the question then becomes whose worldview can provide the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. For this, I now turn to the nature of my particular argumentation. So as I have elucidated thus far, the nature of this debate is that of worldview against worldview, principle against principle, system against system. Having competing systems or worldview perspectives, are we relegated to a standstill, unable to push the debate any further? Since whatever fact the skeptic brings, I'm going to interpret in light of my worldview. And every fact that I bring, he's going to interpret in light of his. Well, I don't think that this is the situation that we're just at an immovable standstill. I think we can break this apparent standstill by demonstrating the truth of one's perspective transcendentally. So the nature of my argument for God's existence is transcendental in nature. For those who may be listening, what do I mean when I speak of transcendental arguments? Well, when we speak of transcendental arguments, we are in essence asking, what are the preconditions? That is to say, what must be the case in order for something else to be the case? An easier way to understand this would be something to the effect like I'm standing on the floor in my house, you know, for instance, for my being able to stand up in my living room. Well, among other things, the beams upon which my house is built need to be under the floor holding everything up. If the beams aren't there, then I wouldn't be standing. But here I am standing up. So the beams need to be there. So uh, that's just a simple example to kind of get the idea. Transcendental argumentation asks what must be the case in order for something else to be the case. If we use the examples of the laws of logic, you need to understand 
that transcendentals are proven by the impossibility of the contrary. So suppose someone rejected the laws of logic. The transcendental necessity of the laws of logic are clearly seen in that even in denying them, one needs to presuppose them in order to deny them. In other words, the transcendental necessity of the laws of logic are demonstrated by the impossibility of the contrary. Deny them, and you demonstrate their existence in your very denial, since your denial necessarily presupposes them. In like fashion, my argument is the proof of the existence of the God of Christianity is that it doesn't exist. One could not prove anything at all. If one denies the Christian theistic worldview, I would argue that such a denial would reduce the non-Christian's perspective to absurdity. Now again, the temptation will be to suggest that my argument is merely an assertion, but to think such fails to recognize the nature of my argument and the nature of transcendental arguments in general. Remember, the transcendental argument for God's existence is an argument, and it is my job in this debate to make good on my argument, and I'm going to try my best to do so. So what is required of my opponent today? If my argument is that the proof for the truth of the Christian worldview is that if it were not true, one could not prove anything at all, what my opponent must do is to lay out his own worldview and demonstrate that given the truth of his own worldview outlook, he can save knowledge, science, logic, meaningful history, rationality, induction, and in essence, intelligibility. Hence, given the very nature of my argumentation, Chris is not relegated to merely stating his lack of belief, if that's his position. Again, I will let him speak for himself, and only responding to why he thinks my view is insufficient. The very nature of my argument requires the responder to show his hand and lay out his own perspective, his worldview, and engage system versus system. In essence, what ground is Chris standing on? What is his worldview foundation? And is that foundation coherent and consistent? And does it provide the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience? What is his worldview? What does he believe about the nature of reality? What does he believe about how knowledge is gained? What does he believe about our lives? And is about these things consistent with each other? What becomes especially interesting is what is his epistemology? How will he address these issues? He could go the rationalist route. Everything that's true must be coherent. But how does he avoid the traditional problems with rationalism? He can go the empirical route. Uh, through sense, knowledge comes through sense perception and experience. But how does he answer the issues that are inherent within empiricism? Or he can combine the two and go the way of Kant, but then that perspective, I would argue, has its own problems. Again, I don't want to speak for Chris, so we're going to wait and see uh, what he has to say and from there engage in uh, worldview interaction. But for now, I think this is sufficient to lay out the issues at hand. And so for now, I concede my time. All right. Thank you. All right. So that was your opening. Um, let's go through your opening and because you put a lot into that. <laughs> And, uh, of course, there's someone in chat who is saying that um, you shifted the burden of proof. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's someone who is a professing atheist and therefore they're upset if you shifted the burden of proof, which is what they like to do. Hmm. But <laughs> but, yeah, so let's let's work through your opening bit by bit for folks. And if anyone wants to join in and engage with the, the debate, uh, post debate discussion, give your thoughts um, we'd be happy to engage with that. So um, you can go to the to apologeticslive.com. There's a link to join there. So um, although we may have found Eli was finding he upgraded his iPad and <laughs> the upgrade may not be <laughs> the new iOS version may not be the best for <laughs> for joining. I don't know. But but uh, yeah, so let's let's walk through it. You know, walk through why you you laid out your opening argument the way you did. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I really wanted to avoid the skeptic hiding his position 
And so when the skeptic hides their position, it becomes very difficult to actually debate both sides of the coin since uh, when a skeptic successfully hides their position, then it's only your position that's being attacked and the other person's position is hiding safely away. And so the nature of the transcendental argument is that it forces the skeptic to actually show his hand. That, in other words, you can't respond to the transcendental argument unless you show your hand. Since the claim of the transcendental argument is that the truth for the uh, of the proof of the Christ, the truth of the Christian worldview is that if it were not true, you couldn't prove anything at all. Well, how could you answer that argument? Well, you're going to have to lay out your worldview and show that you can have a foundation for proof given your own principles. That's the very nature of the argument. So um, it's not shifting a burden of proof. Rather, it's showing that in in a worldview versus worldview situation, everyone has a burden of proof. And so um, I laid it out in that way so that it was set up at the beginning that he would not just sit there and disagree with everything I'm saying, but not actually put forth his own case. Since since what, what, what was I arguing for? Which worldview provides the preconditions for knowledge? Which worldview makes sense out of the debate we're about to have? And so I followed very closely uh, Greg Bonson's structure and then added my own twist and emphasis towards the middle and end parts of um, my opening statement. But I really like in uh, Greg Bonson's debate with Gordon Stein, how he laid out the issues. You know, it's an issue of worldview, it's an issue of uh, in, interpretive grids. We're not just talking about neutral facts. Facts are interpreted in light of worldview perspectives. And I think a lot of people um, miss that. They just assume that we can just argue about individual facts and it doesn't really matter because we kind of just generally agree that these specific things are what they are and we can interpret them in various ways. Um, I wanted to highlight that you have to not be neutral in these kinds of discussions. And so that's the reason why I structured the opening statement the way that I did. All right. So... I mean, the thing, I think the thing that I usually find with this topic, right? The topic was, does God exist? Mm -hmm. And typically what I find is someone that professes to be an atheist or agnostic, as you said, they usually don't give you their position, which uh, Chris actually did uh, right well, from the get-go. Surprisingly, so that's what made it very It made it very easy. Kind of it made it good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but typically what they want to do is just kind of sit back, avoid, and just say, oh, you have the burden of proof. You have the, the, the way they'll do it is say, well, I'm not, I'm, I can't prove a negative, right? And so they put the burden of proof on you, which in this case, technically, yes, you did have the burden of proof because you're taking the affirmative. Um, right. And uh, I think... Um, the I was wrong about the person I said maybe an atheist he says not an atheist just a fan of logic <laughs> but I think what you did was you know by by laying it out the real question is he's going to make an argument that God doesn't exist or to best of his knowledge at least God doesn't exist mm -hmm. and yet really the case you're making is well to even make that claim requires immaterial transcendental things to have this discussion in the first place, which is the burden he, I think he does have when he denies God to have to say, okay, how can you have these transcendentals? Which is why I think you went that way for some people that may not understand that maybe transcendentals are a little bit of a new topic for some folks. 
maybe we should spend a little bit of time. And folks, if you want to join, by the way, you just go to apologeticslive.com and you can join in the discussion. You can ask questions. You can give some challenges. And then later on, if you have um, if you have open any other questions after we get done with post-debate, uh, you, we can discuss those as well. So just go to apologeticslive.com to join us and either engage in this conversation or ask us any questions that you have. So let's get into transcendentals. First off, what I'd like you to do, in since you're not having as much of a, a 10-minute time window here, <laughs> we have a little bit more time. Can you explain for folks what a transcendental is and then why is that so so important in this discussion? Right. When, well, uh, instead of just talking about transcendentals in isolation, I, I want to talk about transcendentals in the context of an argument. What is a transcendental argument? Because um, it's a unique argument. And, and as one of the, the commenters uh, was suggesting that I was shifting the burden of proof, I wasn't. I welcome the burden of proof, but I don't want to pretend as though I'm the only one with the burden because we are arguing worldview versus worldview. And I'm arguing that my worldview is the necessary pre uh, provide the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. So if the if the unbeliever disagrees with that, then the very nature of the argument is that they actually provide a foundation for their own worldview. All right, because that is the nature of my argument. Okay, so uh, just throwing that out there. Now, transcendental arguments ask, what are the preconditions for something? Uh, in in the case of my opening statement, what are the preconditions for intelligible experience? What are the preconditions for knowledge? What must be true in order for knowledge to be possible? And um, that question really is challenging whether one's worldview grid is coherent in the first place to even offer an argument in favor of something or against something, right? So if the worldview is unable to hold itself up, then that person has no foundation because they are working through uh, a defective grid, so to speak, a defective paradigm, right? So transcendental arguments ask, what are the preconditions? What must be true in order for knowledge to be possible, intelligibility to be possible, science to be possible, coherency of history to be possible. And I would argue that atheism doesn't have it. Atheism does not have a leg to stand on. If we grant the truth of atheism, regardless of what manifestation of atheism one wants to hold, if someone wants to qualify and say, well, not all atheists believe the same thing. Granted, any atheistic perspective, I would argue, lacks the preconditions for intelligible experience. Now, in my opening statement, that I, I highlighted the point that that is not a mere claim. I'm not just saying atheism cannot. I'm willing to interact and and show that my worldview can provide the preconditions. And the nature of my argument is that it requires the atheist to show that he can provide the necessary preconditions. And from the debate, if you watch the debate, um, he holds to um, uh, an atheistic perspective. He's a pragmatist in regards to knowledge and even admits, given his own perspective, uh, that we can't know objective truth. And so, right, right, there you go. I know he knows a bunch of things. But given the truth of his own perspective, he can't know the things that he says he knows. And there lies the inconsistency. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I notice with debates like this is you first have to have common ground. You're going to try to say, okay, we're going to discuss whether God exists. You're, you have the burden of proof to prove God exists. 
And I'm going to argue, as I did in, in the debate that we'll do a review of when I get back from California, uh, I argue that immaterial entities, any immaterial entities, cannot be a product of, of pure chemical reaction. Therefore, they require an immaterial source. A, a transcendental would be an immaterial entity. And so the issue is you need to have a you need to have some common ground in the debate. Otherwise, you, you talk past each other mm-hmm. and <clears throat> which happened more in my debate on the <laughs> gospel truth channel than yours. <laughs> right, right. But, um, but Andrew, real, real quick, common ground is not neutral ground. Correct. Well, that's, that's why a, I was very that's specific. That's important distinction. That. Right. Yeah, why don't you explain the, explain the difference between neutral ground is and then I'll explain why I said common ground. Yeah, well, when we talk about neutrality, if we, we could look at a fact uh, in a neutral fashion and then go from there, it, it almost presupposes the reality of, of brute facts, kind of these uninterpreted facts. They just are they just are self-evident. And uh, as Cornelius Van Til, who is uh, really the father of presuppositional apologetics, he said in regards to, to brute facts, brute facts are mute facts. Facts don't speak, right? In order to understand a fact, it needs to be interpreted within a worldview uh uh, system, right? And so we do not speak about individual facts as though they could be understood independent of a worldview. And so that's why I don't discuss the resurrection in isolation. I don't I don't discuss miracles in isolation. Miracles, resurrection, facts of science or whatever are always and only can be discussed within a framework. And so I want to highlight that I have a Christian framework and therefore I can make sense out of these things. If you have a non-Christian framework, say an atheistic framework, I would argue that given that framework, the things you think you know about those specific facts, you don't know if your framework is true. If atheism is true, then you can't know the things you think you know. Again, not a claim. That's the challenge. That's the transcendental challenge. Prove me wrong by putting forth an atheistic metaphysic, epistemology, ethic, a coherent system, and then make sense out of individual facts. And I would, I would argue it can't be done. All right. And so the reason that I said common ground is because I'm not trying to I'm not arguing that that we have uh, a neutral position that we can get to. Um, but in in having a, a any kind of debate, we, we have to have some common way of saying how we're going to argue. In other words, a lot of times you get into these debates, what you hear from people is they're going to say, well, I want you to prove that God exists using science. Right. And, and right there, we're going to have a category error because science is the study of the material world. God is not material. He's immaterial. Therefore, using science can never get you to be able to prove God, which is why I think they like to do that. They like to do that because it automatically puts them in, in kind of a winning position. Now, the flip side, um, you you know, try to use science to prove something like George Washington was the first president. You can't do that from the scientific method. Why? Um, because we can't produce that, reproduce that, or observe that. You'd use mm-hmm. history, right? So that's a different branch of study from science. So they always want to appeal to, well, you have to use science, the scientific method. And yet what we end up seeing is the scientific method 
never seems to be uh, challenged in the fact that you can't use that for studying a whole lot of things. Definitely can't use that for the study of the immaterial world. Yeah, and I think um, science, when you say prove to me scientifically, again, now now you're laying out your epistemology. So do you think... You know, do you think all knowledge comes through scientific proof? If you believe all knowledge comes through scientific proof, you're laying out your epistemology. But that epistemology does not provide the preconditions of intelligibility because given the truth of that epistemology, it's false. If it's true, it's false. If all knowledge comes through scientific proof, which scientific proof did you use to demonstrate that all knowledge comes through scientific proof? It's it's literally contradictory. And the word proof should not be in the same sentence as science. And science is not a proofing discipline. It is a pragmatic discipline. As the atheist uh, cosmologist Sean Carroll said, that uh, science doesn't give us truth. It gives us theories that work, right? When people say science is always changing and new information is coming in, that presupposes that whatever conclusion you already came to was not necessarily true because more information come in and you can fix it and, and, and rearrange your theory and then posit something else. So, and that's not a bad thing. That's, that's a good thing about science. I understand that. But you can't give science the role that it cannot hold, namely getting to absolute truth. Science itself presupposes a worldview context in which the very method itself makes sense. And I would argue that in an atheistic worldview, I mean, if you want science to be your epistemology within an atheistic worldview, I would say that that itself is inconsistent given the principles of atheism, regardless of what kind of atheism you want to hold to. You know, I, I really enjoyed what we once had on, on this channel, on this show. Uh, someone came in and was challenging Matt Slick on, on this. And he said, all things, everything can be proven by science, by the scientific method. And Matt just sat there and just with all seriousness said, can you prove that statement using the scientific method? Mm-hmm. And the guy just didn't even. Self-referentially he, false. He, well, he missed it. He totally didn't realize that like, Matt saying, well, okay. But you know this to be true. And the guy's like, yes. Okay, prove that using the scientific method. And the guy's like, we wouldn't use science to to prove that. He said, but you said you could prove everything by the scientific method. Like the guy didn't even recognize that when you say everything can be proven by scientific method, that includes that statement itself. And it just like right right over his head. Right. And And I would argue that you can't prove anything. Scientifically, the science is not involved with proving in the sense of absolute certainty. You can come to conclusions. I'm sorry. So science disproves. Science doesn't prove, right? You you can right. You you can use. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You You can use science. So you get a hypothesis. You come out with a hypothesis. Here's what the science would say, or assume. And then you use science to attempt to prove the hypothesis wrong. Now, if you can't, it's assumed to be true. And now there's certain, I mean, that's simplifying it very much. But, oop, Eli dropped out. Don't know what just happened to Eli. We'll see if he can come back in. Um, That's always good. I like the technology when it works. Here's Eli. We're waiting for him to come back in. There you go. 
Now he's coming in slowly. There we Sorry. are. So Sorry, I lost, um, lost you there. Sorry about that. Now I got to get the. Oh, here we go. So there's Jay Jay Harry, who was the guy saying he's a lover of logic. I agree with Eli on this point. So there you go. He was disagreeing with you or saying you had the burden of proof or you're shifting proof, but now he agrees with you. So that's good. So where were we before you dropped that? Oh, we were talking about science and proving. So, so go with that. Go ahead with what you were saying. Well, I was saying that science doesn't engage in proof in the sense of getting us to an absolute certainty about anything. It's pragmatic. So you deal with theories that, that work. If you say prove to me scientifically, and you're saying that, you know, by proof, you mean getting to certainty, then you're, you're, you're using science in an inappropriate way. And I think smart atheists understand that. Atheists who do science understand science is not getting you to certainty. And that's why theories can change. Uh, new information comes in. Um, and science is something that is in constant flux. And that is not a detriment to science. That's, a, that's good. If you understand science in the proper sense as a pragmatic discipline, not so much a knowledge, a certain knowledge gaining discipline. And, you know, for let, let's get into and we're going to play uh, Chris's opening in a bit and, and you'll tell me when to stop. But because uh, I know there's some things you want to interact with it. But um, this is the first time you're doing a formal debate. Uh, there was some prep work you did. I want for folks who maybe have never done a debate. Um, last week we had uh, a debate here on Apologetics Live with a Baptist and a Lutheran. And uh, the Lutheran, Rob, had never done a debate before. Um, and so there, the first time doing a debate can be a little bit nerve wracking. Uh, let's talk about <laughs> some of your prep for this and what you were hoping to achieve with your opening before we go to his opening. Yeah, um, I, I I don't know. I don't know how other people prep. I know a lot of people read or listen to stuff. I, I'm a audio learner, and so I listen through listen. I, I learn through listening, and I learn through discussion. So I actually had a lot of help from Matt Yester. I know you you know who he is. Are you familiar yeah. with Matt Yester? Yeah. yeah. So you know who Matt Yester is. I've had, we, I've had we talk on the phone. Oh, cool. So we, we talk for hours on the phone and uh, we pick apart, you know, how to critique different perspectives and things like that. And he's helped me immensely. I, I learned through discussion and debate uh, with folks who already agree with me. And so we kind of role play. And that's really the, the way I kind of prep. I also did um, listen to some of his, uh, his videos and things like that. Um, to see what, you know, if I can find something. And he was a little difficult. I didn't, I didn't know where to look in terms of finding the things I knew I wanted to bring out of the debate. Um, unlike the guy that I just recently debated, uh, he actually had a, uh, the guy negation of P, he had a critique on YouTube of presuppositional apologetics. And so that was helpful because it, it, dealt, it dealt directly uh, with the perspective I was coming from. But sometimes, you know, the people you're debating might not have something that addresses specifically what you're looking for. And so you just need to listen to see if you can kind of glean and then take some of those ideas and throw them into the, you know, into the mix with someone who can role play with you and, and kind of figure, how might I answer this? How might I address this? I had a discussion with the um, atheist YouTuber, Tom Jump. And Tom Jump really was an inspiration for me um, setting up my, my opening statement the way that I did, because Tom Jump 
is very elusive. Now, he, he's a nice guy. I mean, it, we had a great discussion, but he's elusive in the sense that he doesn't often take his own position outright. He will have these hypothetical positions that he would posit as, well, what about this? What about that? And it can be very difficult to pin down. And so when after my discussion with him, I wanted to avoid uh, the person with which I with whom I'd be debating. I wanted the, I wanted to avoid the uh, this issue of hiding one's perspective. So I framed my opening statement so that the only way to respond to my argument was that you showed your hand. In other words, if you didn't show your hand, if you didn't tell me your worldview, you're not addressing my argument because my argument, the only way to respond to the argument is that you present your worldview. That's why That's why the argument goes like this. The, the proof for the truth of the Christian worldview is that if it were not true, you couldn't prove anything at all. Now, the atheists are like, well, that's ridiculous. All right, great. Now, understand, that is not a mere assertion. It is an argument. It's a challenge. I'm saying that my worldview provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience. You don't agree with me? Then show me that your worldview can provide the necessary preconditions for intelligibility. See, so the only way you could answer it is to lay out your worldview and show how your worldview can provide the preconditions for intelligibility, right? So the very nature of the argument forces the the unbeliever to um, actually show their hand. And that's a good thing. It's not a sneaky uh, um, technique to shift the burden of proof. <clears throat> it's it's a good thing because then both views are out in the open. There's no hiding. And we can compare both worldviews side by side to actually address which one actually accords with reality. And so that's the reason why I set up the um, the opening statement the way that I did. And when I was preparing for that, uh, those were the kinds of issues um, I discussed with Matt and other people as I was prepping. So um, there was someone that had a comment in here from Twitter that said, Christianity is so obvious, does not even need apologies. I think someone may not understand what the word apologetics means. <laughs> so let's let's address that. Apologetics doesn't mean to make an apology for Christianity. It is a defense of the faith. That's that's what a, apologetics uh, in the in the Greek means when we we see that apologa. It is the idea of um, oh oh they're they're now saying I mean apologetics, um, but it doesn't. I, I I'll say that it does need. We do need to be able to um, to defend the faith, to be able to defend what we say, and I think that's that's I mean that's what this whole show is about, right? We come in, we take challenges, and we give a defense of the Christian faith. So, uh, well, I oh, think they, another they important they thing trying, too, they were trying to be I, funny. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, because people do come from that perspective, like, well, yeah. Christianity is so obvious; we don't need to defend. And um, whereas this person is probably joking, there are people who who are not joking and think that's the case, right? Um, and we got to be careful when we say that that Christianity does not need, you know, we don't need to engage in apologetics then you're actually refuting yourself since Christianity teaches that we are to engage in apologetics, right? So you don't <laughs> want to refute your own your own position. That's why when we talk about worldviews, when we're defending the worldview, one of the prerequisites for defending your worldview is actually understanding the tenets of your worldview, which include the biblical mandate to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. And as Jude chapter 1 verse 3 says that we are to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered. All right, so you want to? Should we go to his opening? Sure. Okay. So just you just let me know um, 
where's a good stopping point here? Now, clearly, right before you even get started, right? Um, clearly, you could see that he is a gamer. <laughs> why are all these? Why are all these guys that want to debate? Why are they all like gamers now? By the way, in his opening, I think it wasn't his opening or when he introduced himself. I forget which. He ad- he admits that this is what he does full time is his 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 YouTube streaming of of his gaming and stuff. I I'm still trying to figure out how you make a living at playing games and having others watch you. I know there's some people that made millions of dollars at it, but um, I don't know. It just, it looks like he may be in mom's basement. <laughs> just saying like, I mean, it's like you look, you look at his room. Everything is, is like from childhood. <laughs> it just like, I always want to say, feel like well, this. Well, like, don't, don't poison the well. Don't poison the well, Andrew. We don't want to commit the genetic fallacy that because no, I'm he not is poisoning a gamer. I'm not saying his argument. I'm not saying his argument is he bad. He's a really nice guy. Was, we had a okay. All right. <laughs> I'm just saying. What is it about? Hey, in, in his defense. In his defense. Ready? Okay. I'm gonna get personal here. You see, you see, I'm wearing a nice collared shirt. Ready? Boom. I'm wearing my, my pajamas. <laughs> 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 so, so people might think like, oh, how proper he looks. He's so well-spoken. I'm wearing, uh, look at these things. If you can just get the ca- get the, the screen there. These are Christmas trees. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't want to judge someone by appearance because then I well, would. I would uh, yeah, no, I, hey, look, I, I bust on Matt all the time because he wears that, uh, what's that stupid TV show that everyone watches? Walking Dead. He, he wears the Walking Dead sweats. <laughs> He'll he'll have a nice shirt on, and then he stands up and walks around. It's like okay, you got a nice shirt now. Everyone sees yeah, you. That's right. But but the point I was just saying is like I don't know what it is about people that want to debate Christian. I was just on uh, Skylar Fiction's um, show, and and I'll tell you, son, his audience is got to be one of out of all the t- shows I go on. That's got to be his audience is like as soon as I come in, and it's like oh Christian automatically I'm lying. I mean, it was iron, the irony. We we're talking about Islam. Okay. Mm-hmm. On, on an atheist show, an atheist and a Christian are both agreeing about things on Islam, but I'm the one creating straw man arguments and lying. And I'm like, right. Well, but yeah. he just said the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I was on Skyler's show once and, um, I found him to be very disingenuous. Uh, I answered his questions. He interrupted me and I was, Eventually, we got into a good a good amount of content, but eventually he kept interrupting me. And I said, you know what? I, I think we're done here because you're not going to let me talk. And so once I stepped off, he did an after show and was saying how I couldn't answer his questions. I was scared and blah, blah, blah. So it was, it was very disingenuous. So I, I do try to yeah. avoid those those sorts. But Jay Harry is, is busting on me saying there's Christian gamers. Not all gamers are atheists. Come on. I know. I'm, I'm a gamer. Before we just had this show, I was playing my Nintendo Switch. <laughs> you guys, you guys got to grow up. But <laughs> but see, there there is a difference about a guy. I mean, when you, you look at the background here, I mean, you know, it's just everything is i don't know it just it, to me it looks like childhood <laughs> i thought saying. i thought it i thought it was cool i he was a really nice guy i like that oh i thought of it, stuff, yeah i did I, I did think he was a nice guy uh, and i will admit i see his chair behind him and i'm like i got to get me one of those chairs i i said <laughs> right. chairs well i got to get one of those, those was like, headphones i keep huh? using these air these i keep using these i want to get those headphones i keep using these airpods and the battery keeps dying so i need to get something that plugs into the side. So I don't have that problem. 
Yeah, no, he, I, 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 w- I was at Costco and I sat in one of those gamer chairs, man. 600 bucks, but it was comfortable. So you got 600 bucks laying around. So, but all right, let's, <laughs> let's play this clip from him and, uh, and see what his opening was. Very brief sense uh, argues that what is useful uh, is ultimately what we end up working with. Um, as a result, if we're looking at science, pragmatism would argue that for the purposes of science, we would use instrumentalism, uh, which is the view that concepts and theories are uh, useful instruments and progress of science cannot be couched in terms of concepts and theories uh, somehow mirroring re- reality. Uh, they have to work on an instrumental basis and are used for the purposes for the amount of time that they are required there. Um, when it comes to things like metaphysics, um, some pragmatists like John, uh, like John Dewey were empirical thinkers. Um, so it really depends on what you get there. Uh, where pragmatism has issues is that it is sometimes, uh, what's the best word for it? Uh, sometimes it works against itself. Um, but also pragmatism is literally built on three people not agreeing with each other about what pragmatism All is. All right, stop okay. right there. Stop yeah, I was, right there. I was stopping that right there as well. Yeah. <laughs> that, just- that surprised me that he admits that because the, the whole point of my argument is to show which worldview provides the preconditions for intelligibility. And he admits right at the beginning that pragmatism works against itself. Uh, and you'll see if you watch the rest of the debate, it does work against itself because on the one hand, we can't know objective truth. We only use what's useful. And then he continues to make objective truth claims, which is the internal inconsistency there. Yeah, I mean, once once you're going to try to argue for a system and, and say one system is better than the other and, and can be used to prove the other's wrong, and then you say that the system within itself destroys itself <laughs> or, or doesn't always work, then you can't mm. use that. You know, the argument just collapses on itself. And I, right. I thought I, I was actually I mean, this is pretty early in his opening. I was actually shocked when I heard him say that. And and I, I want to give credit to Chris because most guys that hold to his position would never admit that. And he, he does a lot of debate. So maybe that he has been it's been pointed out. And because it's been pointed out over and over again, he doesn't want to. uh he just doesn't want to go in and, and address that. Uh, but I was I was pleasantly surprised that he admitted it. And and then I think that also helps to set the tone of the cross-examination because all of a sudden now you don't have to try to prove that because he's already admitted it. And and that just like probably for like, you know, okay, in your cross-examination, you probably had all these notes that went, okay, we'll just push those to the side because he didn't need them anymore. You know, right. it, it, it's no longer an issue because he's already accepted an argument you wanted to prove. Right. And for those who are looking or are listening to this episode here to get tips on doing apologetics, that's a, that's a helpful tip. Once someone admits inconsistency, then your job always is just to bring them back to that inconsistency every time they are, you know, they're making, you know, for example, there, there's a point in the debate and the cross-examination, which we'll go over where I ask them, you know, in your world, you can you have objective truth? He eventually admits that you can't. And so what's my job? My job is not to memorize 50,000 other arguments or whatever. I want to relentlessly make him con- be consistent with his worldview. 
If your worldview says we can't know objective truth, then we need to point out every single time someone makes an objective truth claim because that's a problem. That's contradictory. In other words, it's, it's to say that given the truth of your worldview, hey, your epistemology says we can't know objective reality. We don't have the preconditions for intelligibility, right? Or knowledge. You can't make knowledge claims. So he was his his view proved my point that his world you didn't have the preconditions and that's and my job throughout the debate was just to point those things out every time he would make statements so just from an apologetics you know uh strategic perspective you want to look for inconsistencies and then pound those inconsistencies with gentleness and respect pound them to powder don't let that person um uh you know get away from that now if he wants to back up and correct his position or maybe clarify fine but once you see those inconsistencies, then you go straight for the jugular because that's where the root of the problem is for the unbeliever. Yeah. All right. Let's let's play a little bit more of of this with him. I would argue that sometimes those inconsistencies are inherent to the inner bankings of pragmatism, and I don't see a problem with that as long as it gets the job done and it's useful. Stop! 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 stop. stop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the inconsistencies are part of the inner bankings of pragmatism. That's not the that's not the issue that made me want to stop, but that's okay. In other words, if inconsistencies is useful then use them. I'm sorry, but a worldview that says inconsistencies are okay is proving my point. You don't have the preconditions for intelligibility. And that is irrational. I mean that respectfully towards Chris's position. It's irrational and contradictory. And this is precisely what the Bible says in regards to the wisdom of man. Pragmatism is just one manifestation of the many options that men have concocted. And that's why the Bible says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's not name calling. It's not making fun of someone. It's really just pointing out the folly of a position that has nowhere to plant its feet. And that's why as Christians, we want to stand firmly and uncompromisingly upon the firm bedrock of the Christian worldview given to us in scripture, because we want to be faithful to Jesus in our apologetic. We don't want to defend the honor of our Lord Jesus by arguing upon a foundation that moves away from uh, uh, the foundation that Jesus has, has provided for us in scripture. And so this is an issue of consistency. Don't be ashamed that you're a Christian. Don't be ashamed that you're standing on the Bible. Stand on the Bible because it's the very wisdom of God. Stand off the Bible, step off the Bible, step off that worldview, and you're going to be relegated to adopting some form of man-centered philosophy, which pragmatism is just one manifestation of and is obviously um, uh, logically absurd. Yeah, I mean, I... <sighs> I think that the position, I mean, once he says it's okay because it gets me to what I want, right there is the, the realization that what he's doing is begging the question, <clears throat> you know, yes. and, and he, he's, he's doing it by confirmation, like confirmation bias, because he's going to say it works to get the conclusion I want. And as long as right. the conclusion I want comes out, hey, it's okay. And, right. and, and the, assu the assumption is the assumption is that it must be it has to be that way because there is no way to access objective truth. So he has to take that position because he's committed to the assumption that whatever is objectively true out there, I have no access to it. And then he will point out, 
but neither do you. He makes that statement later. Everyone has no access. Everyone's in the same dilemma. Now, how does he know this? Again, his epistemology doesn't give him the proper equipment to even know that is the case. And that's the problem. It's just contradictory left and right. Yeah. All right. Should we play a little bit more of him? Sure. All right. Let's... Moving on to uh, my position on God. So if we're talking philosophical, uh, philosophically speaking, uh, then I have to label myself an agnostic. I don't have a choice. If we're talking colloquially, uh, then I'm perfectly fine labeling myself an atheist under, say, the lack of belief position, anything like that. Um, but again, it depends on which uh, side of the coin we are arguing for, hard philosophical definitions, or if we are arguing for more colloquial or, as I would say, useful definitions. Um, okay. So here's here was the thing I had with this. He says, or more useful definitions. But how does he define useful? And I, my guess is useful is defined by if it works to the conclusion that I want. <laughs> right? So I'll, I'll change the definition if I need to. Because you and I have experienced this with people that profess to be atheists. They just change the definition of atheist, right? Instead of taking a position there is no God, they realize they have to defend that. So they just say that they lack a belief in God and therefore they should, don't have to defend anything because they're just lacking the belief. Well, well, that doesn't help when you're arguing with a Christian, since if you're going to try and take a position to alleviate the burden of proof, you don't succeed when saying I lack belief to a Christian, because to say I lack a belief is to implicitly say the Christian worldview is false. And that's a knowledge claim I want to bring out because the Bible says all men know that God exists such that they are without excuse. Now, he doesn't have to affirm that. He can say, well, I think that's ridiculous. You can think it's ridiculous. But the fact that you say you lack belief is actually an implicit contradiction of the Christian perspective. And since you're debating a Christian, we need to talk about that. And so uh, show me that the claims to knowledge that you have. You can do it within your system and you're not ha you not having to borrow from the Christian system because the, the fact is you need to borrow from the Christian position, which means you can't have knowledge without the Christian God. Of course, there needs to be more hashed out there, but that's uh, along the lines of where um, I would kind of uh, touch the nerve, so to speak. <laughs> so Jay Harry from uh... – from YouTube says this to Eli. Eli knows his stuff. I saw him on MDD the other night. I might not agree with everything, but nice job. So it's always good to have someone that doesn't agree with you saying that uh, you do a good job. Thank you. So let's let's return to our friend here. Whichever one you want to use, perfectly fine with me. I go into the atheist fine, accepting the laws of logic. Because it is through laws like that, like the law of non-contradiction, uh, that I start to have issue with the way God is presented, at least in the uh, standard Christian worldview. Insofar as the term standard Christian worldview even has a coherent meaning, just as there is no atheist worldview, there is no agnostic worldview, I would argue that there are at least 40,000 Christian worldviews and probably more, depending on how many individuals there stop, are. Stop, 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 yeah, stop. I, I, was, I was waiting for him to finish that sentence because I was going to get into that, but yeah. Yeah. There's, now, there's, you know, if you want to come, if you want to comment on the amount of Christian worldviews he he just mentioned there, I actually wanted to comment briefly on this a notion that atheism is not a worldview. Yeah, and well, it, there's 
the fact, okay, let's, let's deal with a couple things. There's three things that I saw there. One, he claims that atheism is not a worldview, but he admits that there's different views of atheism. We would might say different worldviews, but then he applies the worldview to religion and says that there's 40,000 of them, uh, making it sound like, well, there's way more than there are views of atheism. Uh, I think that we would we, we could probably show there's plenty more views of atheism than just atheism and agnosticism. <laughs> but uh, let's first start with the first premise. Is atheism a worldview? Because this is what so many professing atheists try to do is say, well, I don't have a worldview. What's a worldview? The, that worldview is a religious thing. So what's a worldview, Eli? A, uh, well, I usually give two definitions of a worldview, one very simple, and then the more technical definition, because I think the technical definition really brings out the, uh, the meat and potatoes of what constitutes a worldview. So surprise, surprise, a worldview, simplistically speaking, is a view of the world, okay? Uh, it's a way of seeing the world. That's, I mean, that's just a simple, you know, um, we all have worldviews because we all have different ways we see uh, reality. Now, the more technical definition, I would say that a worldview is a network of presuppositions in terms of which all reality is interpreted. And I think the key issue there is that a worldview is a network of presuppositions. Everything that we believe is connected to other things. It's impossible to believe one thing independent of other things. And so it's a it's a system of of uh, a worldview system, a way, a grid, so to speak, lens, a lens through which you see and interpret everything in human experience. Okay. Now, if you want to say atheism is not a worldview, um, I would say it is. And if you highlight the fact that a bunch of atheists believe all sorts of different things, I'll say, okay, let's assume there are more than one atheist worldview. They're all worldviews, right? And they are a view of the world that negates the truth of Christianity because Christianity doesn't believe in atheists, you see, right? (laughs) There there are no atheists within the Christian worldview. So if you say you're an atheist, then you are – having a particular view of the world, namely you're viewing the world in which uh, you're viewing the world in a way in which Christianity is false. Well, you're viewing the world in a way that everything that we see is the product of pure material chemical reactions. Okay. So you have a worldview that denies anything that's outside of the natural world. We'd call supernatural, but you're also denying the immaterial. You're denying Anything that's not physical. So what they what they rely on is to say, well, everything is a product of chemical reactions. Uh, when you have love, that's that's a chemical reaction. Uh, when you know something, that's a product of your brain. But you, what I always do with them is ask them, okay, what about the laws of logic? And they'll say that's just that's product of the human brain. People came up with laws of logic. They created it, which some will say. Some are more honest and say they di- that human brains discovered it. But the reality is laws of logic exist without a human brain. I mean, get rid of every human brain, and does the law of non-contradiction still exist? I mean, before there was a human, before there are any humans in the universe, could the universe have existed and not existed at the same time and in the same way? The answer is no. Therefore, humans didn't create logic they did discover it, but it came from the mind of God. And it's an immaterial thing. It's not something you can physically touch, feel, taste, or see, right? And so this is where I think they have a problem. Now, the the, the 40,000 Christian worldviews is just 
you know, that's, that is, I, I think that he is not giving a number that he thinks is realistic. He, I, I want to give him some credibility. Say, so I, I think he, not credibility, but I think he's, he's, he's exaggerating to try to make a point. Um, but the point is to, is undermined by the fact that he doesn't recognize what a worldview is when he denies he has one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I mean, he does admit there's many different views of atheism and there are. And there's, there'd be just as many, if we organized atheism, there'd be just as many views of atheism as there are views of Christianity. If you built it, if you let it take time to organize. Um, right. I, mean, I, I did find it funny. They had a, a church, an atheist church. I don't know if you, if you heard this. I think it was in Texas. They organized an atheist church. In less than a year, it split. <laughs> <laughs> they had a, Welcome they had to a the church. world of denominations. Yes. <laughs> well, okay. I just a church just split in mind, less uh, than a year. Coming in. <laughs> it just reminded me of, of uh, yeah, that, that's hilarious. Um, yeah. I, and, and I think it's important to highlight, too, um, I would take issue with the, you know, there's that many Christian worldviews. Obviously, the differences between denominations uh, within orthodoxy is not at all, it's not uh, as diverse as one might think, right? We make a distinction between essential doctrines, which unify, and non-essentials, which are things that even Scripture allows for us to disagree over. So um, if you want to categorize that as a different worldview, I, I don't see that as being a different worldview, since within the Christian worldview, there is disagreement is allowed in certain regards. So there, there's a, um, I think a careless um, way of going about that in passing. And of course, the diversity of different denominations has no bearing as to whether Christianity is true or not. So mentioning that really doesn't touch the truth of the Christian worldview. And, and I don't think he was using it in that way, but just yeah. making that point. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, you know, my position, there's only two religions in the entire world, man-made and divine. And so when we look at it that way, at how do we get right with God and atheism would fit into this, they would deny God. And yet they still have a standard for doing good works you know, every man-made religion is a moral, a system of morality. It's doing good. It's trying to earn righteousness. And so what you end up having is with every man-made system, it is a system of works. Christianity is the only one that is a divine system where God does all the work, where we get right with God by what he did. And yes, there might be Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and different groups within there that we would disagree with that have a man-made system. But in those three that I mentioned and more, we would agree on the essentials that God did 100% of the work. We've done none of the work. And we have a biblical religion or a divine religion. Right. right. All right. Let's get back to our friend here. Sorry, it takes me a little bit to switch this up here. Based on Christianity, if there were one coherent Christian worldview, then we wouldn't have a series of no true Scotsman fallacies battling each other over the last 2,000 years. Okay, I had to stop there. I knew it was going to be quick. I forgot (laughs) where that was in there. All right. You know, they bring up the no true Scotsman fallacy all the time. Let's first deal with what this fallacy is and why multiple denominations of Christianity are not a no true Scotsman fallacy. A no true Scotsman fallacy is when someone claims that, well, the the way that it comes about is, uh, and I forget the exact um, thing that happened, but it sounded like, you know, no, no Scotsman would, you know, 
eat something. I forget what it was. Say, say, let's say trout. Okay. No Scotsman would eat trout. And someone points to a Scots, someone that's born in Scotland and he's he eating trout. And the person says, well, no true Scotsman would eat trout. The idea is that you're, you're claiming a, that not someone's not a true something in this case, not a true Christian. If they don't agree with your position completely. However, what is a true Scotsman? Someone with a Scotsman citizenship. How do you know who has a Scotsman citizenship? There's, there is a way to measure that, right? So a true Scotsman is someone who's born in Scotland or immigrated to Scotland and has been approved for citizenship. So once you have a way of defining what makes something a true citizen in that case, or in our case, a true Christian, then it's not a true Christ, uh, Scotsman fallacy to say, sorry, here's the definition, and you're not measuring up to the definition. So in Christianity, we do have a definition that comes from God's word. It's not you, and it's not I who make it up. It's from God's word that defines what a Christian is. It is someone who has repented of sin, converted to Christianity, who've, who've received the gift that Christ has. So they recognize their sin. They recognize that their works don't save them. They recognize what Christ did on the cross is the work that would set them free of a, the guilt and of the, the consequences of sin, that Christ paid that on the cross and his payment is something they have to accept. So what they have to do is it's a turning of our mind. It's a change in our thinking from trusting ourselves and our good works to trusting what Jesus Christ did. Well, we have that. So now when I compare to someone and they say, well, I think I can work my way to heaven. Well, that's not a not true Scotsman fallacy because right. they know what the standard is and they're not following it. It's, there is the definition. And right. when I had a... When I had my discussion with Skylar Fiction, this issue came up where I said that God can't make mistakes or something like that. And he says, well, that's just your view, you know, that you're saying that that's your version of Christianity. Maybe other Christians uh, disagree with you. And I'm like, all right, so give me one example where someone is a Christian and thinks God can make mistakes. If you think God is not perfect, then you're not a Christian because you're not worshiping the God of Christianity. No Christian yeah. affirms God can err because he, you know, he can make a mistake or something like that. A Christian is someone whose ultimate standard for faith and practice is God and his word. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when somebody says, well, I think culture can define, can, can interpret God's word. Then you've given up the Bible and you're not a Christian. Right. right. Um, when, when you're sitting there and saying, well, God can make mistakes then you're not a Christian, you know, or at least, or at least you are a Christian who's ignorant, ignorant, maybe shown yes. in scripture that, the, you know, this is what, you know, the Bible yeah. teaches certain things about God that we need to affirm to, to accurately understand him. All right, let's continue. Yeah. And folks, if you have questions, you're more than welcome to come on in here and challenge us or ask questions about this. Otherwise we're just going to keep going with uh, the openings. As far as God, the God of the Bible is denoted as a God of love. Before we can get into this conversation about what a God of love means, we have to figure out what type of love we're talking about because the biblical version of God 
is going to argue that his version of love uh, would be what we would call agape love, which would be unconditional love. Uh, for anybody who's in, unfamiliar with the term agape, I would say that that is the type of love that is most coherent and most uh, often given to God. Uh, my problems with that, though, are that unconditional love uh, would denote certain things. Uh, for one, it would denote that people that he loves, he may not commit genocide against. I know that it's the common played out trope to go to the flood, but unfortunately it is in the Bible, so I'm going to have to go to it. It's hard for me to square the circle of a all loving being that would actually commit genocide against all of the creatures, especially. Okay. So we got to deal with that because this comes up a lot. He he's bringing this up in the sense of um, he's talking about love and then he brings up issues of justice, right? Mm -hmm. He brings up the flood. Well, why did the flood occur? Well, it's very clear in the Bible why the flood occurred. It was a justice against sinful mankind. They were doing, they were sinful and a judgment came. The reality is if God was loving and just, he would kill us the very first time we sin. That's what justice declares. He's long suffering and letting us continue as long as we do, but it's a category error he makes here. And I don't blame him for this because he does recognize the right definitions of love. Uh, but I don't think he understands the Bible well enough and Christianity well enough to be able to differentiate between justice and love. Yeah, I think, um, and even Christians make this mistake, is we um, tend to overemphasize one attribute of God over against other attributes of God. Now, yes, it's true that God is love, but he's not only love, right? right. If he's only right. love, then it would be inconsistent for him to do all these other things if love is all that he was, right? Uh, well, maybe I, maybe I can retract that. There's some technicalities that we'd have to make there. But the point of what I'm saying is a balanced view of God is that he is love, but he's also good. He's also holy. He's also righteous. He's also just. And, um, and according to the Bible, God doesn't take crap, basically. <laughs> and the, the Bible says, I will no longer strive with man. So it's not this this man is just hanging out doing whatever they're doing and God decides to, to, to wipe them out. God strove with man. And because God is all knowing as well, he knows when it is the proper time to cease striving and to execute judgment. You might not like it. You might not agree with it. You might say, if I were God, I'd do something different. But as Matt uh, Slick would often say, there is a God and you're not him. Complaining well, about it doesn't refute the existence of God. You have some young children. I'm sure you've experienced this as almost every other parent has. When you have to punish your children, have you ever heard, you don't love me? <laughs> well, right? yeah, that's true too. Right? But, but and that's even, exactly there, what, even there. But that's exactly what he's doing. He's, he's, he's like the child going, well, you don't love me if you don't do what I want. And, and it's a wrong definition of love. No, the parent does love the child. That's exactly why he, they're punishing the child to, to train them and protect them from a greater harm later in life. You know? Yeah. And I, I think we addressed that issue later on. About yeah, God's but we're probably justice. never going to get, we're, we're never going to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's, we'll, we'll go. Cause we're going to, we want to make sure we get time for uh, the, uh, that other clip that we have. Okay. This being uh, is all knowing and all powerful, which means that they not only, uh, had other options available to them, being all-powerful, they also knew what these options were because they are all-knowing. And because they are omnibenevolent, they would be behooven to act on these other less cruel notions, and yet they didn't. So obviously one of these traits isn't there. Either they are not all-powerful and they had to 
choose one of the more violent routes, or they are not all knowing and could not conceive of one of these less violent routes, or they are not all loving, in which case the violent route may have even seemed to be uh, a beneficial one at that case, denoting some type of catharsis. Uh, okay, real or, quick. Just... Or, yeah. you know, or God is all knowing and knew precisely the, the method of judgment that he used was just the right one. Exactly. <laughs> That's, That's an thing. option too, <laughs> right? Maybe it's the one who's all knowing who knew something that he in his finite mind didn't know. <laughs> right. There's that right. too. There, there's a third option. So, all right. And that is called the fallacy of the excluded middle. He, he excludes another, the, the other option that answers it. Alternatively, uh, there is also the problem of hell. Um, however, my particular issues of hell will always be uh, contingent on the type of hell that the Christian is asserting. As I do not know um, what Eli's version of hell is, I do not know if this is an annihilation concept or if this is more of a, hey, you're going to be burning forever, like the standard uh, Baptist teaching. I know that he's a Calvinist. Um, okay, we'll stop there just to give a, a to let folks know who, who haven't watched the whole thing. And I'll give a link in the notes, in the show notes uh, for this. But um the the fact is is that, uh, and and I think the show note, the uh, link to this is already on apologeticslive.com. Uh, but the he you do discuss you, you two do end up discussing hell. Uh, the issue that he has is he doesn't like hell. He doesn't like the idea of being punished. Well, and no child likes the idea of being punished. No criminal likes the idea of being punished. And so, so what? I mean, the issue isn't whether you like it, and if you don't like it, it doesn't exist. But that was ultimately his argument with, with hell. Now, he, he pushed it off to the intro uh, uh, in the opening, but that was his argument. He doesn't like it, therefore it, it, God can't exist. Um, the thing, though, is, is it's like, okay, if if God exists, wouldn't he be just? And if he's just, wouldn't he have to punish sin? You know, yeah. all right, let's continue with him. But I do not know. I have not heard yet his particular variant of hell. So I cannot bring the hell argument in unless I know what his version of hell is. So I will go ahead and have to skip over that for the time being. Back to the type of love God has. God's love is best described as unconditional love or agape. He is the embodiment of love and somehow created things like the global flood and hell. But again, I'm not going to bring up hell in detail because I do not want to speak for Eli's uh, view on hell without knowing what it is. However, this does lead us to some problems, at least as far as I'm concerned. If God created everything, which if we're to accept the Christian worldview and work within it, we would have to accept that he did create everything. Uh, there is no start without him being a first cause. We have to accept that he also created evil. This is supported by uh, the book of Isaiah. But if God is all-knowing, <laughs> the result of any of his actions would lead to evil, whether it's creation or lead to him having to enact some type of evil. If you knew I'm it, sorry, I'm laughing at one of the comments. Evil, yeah. which if we grant that he's omniscient, we the, have to. The Pokemon one? Then any action that he takes <laughs> yeah. can be considered evil. I don't think consequentialism works okay since you're laughing we might as well read the comment uh atomic <laughs> apologetics it just, caught me off it just caught me off guard yeah i was i was laughing to just quieter he's I, atomic apologetics says irony denies god's existence but believes in pokemon <laughs> <laughs> uh that's not nice i don't think he believes in pokemon but he probably but thinks pokemon are really cool 
Yeah. <laughs> I like Pokemon. Oh, my goodness. And these things could totally relate to me as well. Yeah. At any rate, I'm giving right. away my, my nerdiness. Let, let's talk a little bit about what he said, though. Uh, did, did, did he say God can uh, – did he say the part yet where he says God can, can create – God created all things. God created evil. Therefore, God is evil. Is that the argument he made just then? He, he, yeah, I think he, he makes that. If not here, it's just after here. So okay, let's let's you play it. Just a couple seconds here. Go ahead. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll play it. Let him say the argument there. Uh, as a moral framework for most people, because most people do not know what the end result of any of their actions will be. This is one of the reasons why in a court of law, for instance, uh, intent is only one part of an equation. That's how we determine motive sometimes. Uh, but a lot of times we will argue things based on what the consequences of actions were, as well as with the intent. With God, the intent is not part of the equation, only the consequences. And the reason for that is because God, regardless of intent, knows what the consequences are. He is in a privileged position to know the consequences of any and all actions moral other moral or otherwise okay so let's deal with that because that that's a thing that many make they they accept that he is all-knowing but they reject that he knows more than them and that's really his argument if god is all-knowing he must know what people are going to do and therefore he has to be responsible for what we think is unjust Right. And that's that's the argument he's making. And yet, if God is all knowing, then he must know that what he's doing is right. Right. Because he knows what we don't. Right. And, and so there's another fallacy in his argument, though, a couple of sentences earlier where he, he says something to the effect, if I remember correctly, I'm not sure if he's going to say it or he had say it. His argument was something along the line that God creates all things. God can create only that which is consistent with his nature. And so God creates evil. And so therefore God is evil. Something to that effect. Yeah. I remember taking issue with that. Think about that. Um, God created good. Therefore he must be all good. It's the absence of good. That's evil. Therefore the, the real problem he has is God is good. And it's the rebellion of God. That's evil. So when you deny God, that is what is evil, not God. Right. I mean, because right. and, and it's he, false to say, go ahead. Well, it's, he sets up a, a false dichotomy to say that God creates evil as if he didn't create good then. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's also a fallacy to say that God can only create that which is consistent with nature. Uh, God, I mean, I was talking to Eric Hernandez. He's been on the show a couple of times and, and we were talking about that. He as well. God created horses, but that doesn't mean he has a horse nature. You mean, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So that premise is false uh, to begin with. And so if that premise is false, his conclusion doesn't follow among the many other issues with his argument. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's see more what he's got to say here. So while most actions, any action from a human can be considered moral, immoral, or amoral, depending on your particular ethical framework, Yahweh's actions necessarily create evil because consequentialism is the only way that we could really judge him because he knows the consequences of his actions. Again, a position unlike anyone else. For God to create anything, that thing must be within his nature. Well, we know that God can create evil. He's created things that necessarily led to evil, and he knew that, and he had the power, and I would assume with omniscience to creativity, to do otherwise and actively chose not to. This means that creating evil is within God's nature. 
if creating evil is within God's nature, it must also then follow that evil is within God's nature. If evil is within God's nature, the idea that he's omnibenevolent must necessarily be discarded. This is a particular omni-trait that can no longer hold. The only way that I could find to escape it... Now, now remember, his, his goal is to prove that God does not exist, mm-hmm. right? He's He isn't doing that. He's proving that he doesn't like the God of the Bible, but he's not proving God well, doesn't exist. Well, I think what he's trying to do is to provide an internal critique that given the truth of the Christian worldview that there's an inconsistency. He's just failing at it because he's not accurately representing the Christian worldview. So I think what he's trying to do there is what he's supposed to be doing. He's just failing at it because I think his knowledge of what Christianity teaches in regards to God, the ontological essence of evil as as a deprivation, not a positive, you know, something, right? Um, Because he's not understanding those categories, his argument is failing. So I think he's doing the right thing, but saying the wrong things. Yeah, he's doing the right thing to a straw man. Well, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. This is to somehow judge God by a standard of morality that one does not know, either by arguing out uh, of the youth of dilemma that all goodness stems from him, in which case, how can we even consider God good? Even even something like divine command theory considers itself ethical subjectivism. Or we can argue that God is separate from good and that he adheres to good, in which case he's bound by it. Now, I recognize this is probably not Eli's position. Eli's position is more than likely going to be that that good necessarily stems from God, necess- uh, necessitating that God would be above any of these laws. I would argue, then, that if this means that we can never judge the moral character of this being whatsoever, then how can we in- how can we call him good? We can't call him stop. evil. We must stop. necessarily stop. not be evil. Now, here is the brunt of his position. He thinks that we need to have the ability to judge God. Yep. And that's not the Christian worldview. If you're frustrated that you can't judge God, welcome to Christianity. You do not tr- you do not judge God. You accept him on his own say so. And if you reject what he says, then your perspective, your worldview will be reduced to absurdity. Yep. So we do not judge God as a we stand over him. And that that's, you know, that needs to be understood. That's his that that is the this right here was the main part of his argument. Right? Because everything he's doing is to set up how he could judge God and God fails his judgment. God doesn't exist because of his standard. Yet what does he do? He sets himself up as the standard. Right? Right. But it but it would be quite useful for him to believe in God because yeah. of the possible benefits, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, maybe he can ground objective truth. That's that's quite useful. Uh, <laughs> Should we? If do, you want to be a wanna, pragmatist, do you want to go on with the the rest of his opening, or you want to go to that other clip that we had? Let's go to the other clip because I think the other clip really gets to the heart of of his yeah. of his problems within his uh, worldview. I, I think. So let me bring that clip up, and I'll I'll share that because I think that that will be helpful for us. So I, you, should I play this in its entirety? I think it's only like three minutes long, right? Yeah, it's like three and a half minutes. Yeah. All right, let's play this in its entirety.
regards to um, epistemology, you said you are a pragmatist, right? Yes. Do you believe in objective truth? Uh, I believe that the concept of objective truth can be useful. Do you believe that there is something? Do you believe that there is objective truth? um, I have a definition of truth, if that will work for you. Do you understand what I mean when I say objective truth? Perhaps you could clarify. Okay. Um, I think objective truth deals with something that is true, independent of our personal opinions. Mm -hmm. Something is true, independent of what we think about. And there's something out there that's objectively truth. Do you believe that there is objective truth? And do you believe that it's possible for someone to know that objective truth? So for somebody to know an objective truth, that actually would fit into my personal definition of truth. My definition of truth in general is mm-hmm. um, if something – well, hold on. Best to say, my definition of truth is that which comports to reality. My definition of knowledge is a belief that comports with reality. If you believe – so if we have a Venn diagram, truth is on one side, belief is on another. Where truth and belief collide – is where knowledge is, at least in my personal worldview. If you believe something and it happens to be true, then you have knowledge. Is there any way that someone could have access to what is actually the case so that they believe things that are true and that they can know them to be objectively true within your worldview Um, perspective? Within my worldview perspective, Mm -hmm. strangely enough, so within pragmatism, something being objectively true, as in something something having ontological value, correct? Is that how you would define this? I would say that something to be objectively true, we are believing something. We have, uh, again, I would I would define truth as a justified, or knowledge as a justified true belief. Can we have beliefs that are true, and we have justification for believing they're true, and those reflect the uh, objective reality? So, justified true belief, from what I understand, and correct me if mm-hmm. I'm wrong, but justified true belief basically takes the Venn diagram that I have where okay. believe things and true things are on one side, knowledge is in the middle, and it adds a third piece to the Venn diagram where there is a justified side. So anything that is justified and believed and true becomes knowledge. So can we have access to objective reality such that we know it on your perspective of pragmatism and the epistemological view of pragmatism? I would agree that we don't actually have access to objective reality everything that we see everything that we perceive is filtered okay so if that's the case then would you say that your worldview system lacks the preconditions for intelligibility since every worldview would have to have some forms of truth or something to undergird uh, a foundation for knowledge all right so there we have that um so let's let's talk about that clip. Now, uh, Andrew, did you notice? Now, I mean this with all due respect for Chris, because I really I'm not saying this just to be, you know, he was a nice guy and I really did enjoy that conversation. But yeah. in this particular interaction, did you hear the dancing, the tipping of the feet, trying to run around the issue? You knew precisely what I was asking, and that's why eventually he probably realized I was not going to stop asking that question. And then he bites the bullet and says, we cannot know objective truth. Yeah. And once he did that, you went right back to what your opening statement was. Because that just showed you that in a debate, you gave an opening. You said, this is going to be what we'll prove tonight. He then basically just lost the debate at that moment. 
mm-hmm. because and right. that's why you that's why you went back for folks who may not pick up on it. That's why you went back to what you said in the very opening. So you're saying that your worldview doesn't have <laughs> the necessary. You know, it's like okay, well now done. The debate's now over. Right now, I don't now know at if that you picked up on yeah, that. I don't know if yeah, you picked I, up I, on. I think he. Did, I think he, did, I I think mean, he I, understood, but he didn't realize the bait was over. I think he realized he was stuck. <laughs> well, he's not going to walk out. I mean, we still had yeah, a lot of time. But, <laughs> but a lot of time. he's well. If he was going to be honest, he'd concede the point and say, "Okay, yeah, you won, right?" Um, but he he's not going to do that. But I think that's when he got stuck. Did he realize that the debate's over and he just lost? I don't think so. I think he just thinks I'm stuck and I got to figure a way out of this. Right. And and I think at that point that was the key for me. Once I got him to say that, that's where I that's what I wanted him to say. That was the point of my line of questioning. Um, and again, not to trap anyone, I really wanted to show, given your worldview, that's where you are. Excuse me, that's where yep. you are. I mean, if you're an atheist and you're not a pragmatist, hold to some. I would argue that's still where you are if you are an atheist. Um, but once he made that statement, then. All I needed to do was remind him of that statement every time he lists a bunch of facts that we know through science and any claim that any claim that he makes. Um, we're not going to go over the closings, but there is a uh, Marlon asks him a question about um, doesn't God have a right to lay down the hammer and judge people? And so uh, he gave a kind of a long-winded answer on the nature of justice and all that other kinds of stuff. And I said, listen, you're asking, you're asking Chris, what does he think about this? Doesn't God, if he exists, have the right to lay down the hammer? Well, Chris could only answer that question in two ways. He could answer it from within my worldview, in which case he would have to admit God does have a right to lay down the hammer. Or he could answer it from within his own worldview, which he just admitted. He couldn't know anything to be true as in regards to what he might say regarding that. And so he doesn't really contribute anything to the discussion, given the truth of his perspective. And so, again, once you give up knowledge, objective truth, you can't make knowledge claims and be consistent at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is, is that and and this is what happens when uh, when in a debate you kind of realize sometimes you got stuck. Um, I mean, he's the more experienced debater and yet (laughs) it seemed like he wasn't as prepared. I think he's done a bunch of debates and probably thought he can handle this. And you came in at a different, different perspective, different angle, and he wasn't ready for it. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I just, um, even if you are prepared for it, I don't see how you can get around given your position getting around you know whether you're prepared or not obviously we hope people are prepared and they take the topic seriously i don't want to uh you know guess as to how prepared he was i mean that's yeah. not my my position but i think the clarity of the absurdity of his view is brought out especially in that particular clip and so i kind of ho- I, ho- I try to drive that point home throughout the rest of the debate yeah so any any other points that you wanted to discuss? I mean, no no one's come in to uh, to have any discussion on the on the debate. Anything that uh, that you think we we should uh, talk about or or point out? Because I think that that closing clip kind of sealed the debate quite literally. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, 
Um, well, I, I mean, I guess I, I want to encourage people that I, I want people to recognize, like just in the open statement, there is no shame in putting forth the Christian worldview on display and saying, I'm arguing for the Christian God. And I think a lot of people are intimidated by unbelievers. And so they adopt some ver various methods that are employed within unbelieving circles like neutrality and, and different philosophical positions that we could hold because we want to be respected with the people, you know, by the people that with, we're, we're interacting with. And I think we need to remember that we're not doing apologetics to impress people. We're not doing apologetics in a way that, you know, the unbeliever will find acceptable. We're doing apologetics in the way that is laid down in scripture. And, I, and it doesn't matter if people laugh at you. It doesn't matter if people think it's ridiculous. We need to be very conscious of the fact that in order to even coherently lay out a position, we need to be standing on the firm foundation of God's word. There is no shame in that. And you have the advantage because you're standing on the very wisdom of God. And there you have it. So I think, you know, now next week, we're not going to have a show. We're not going to have an Apologetics Live show uh, because I will be at Truth Matters Conference in California. And so we will not have one next week. The following week we plan to do is to take a look at a debate that I had on the Gospel Truth channel and that debate well i'll let you, you were guys just talking decide. to yourself you were just talking to yourself andrew <laughs> I, I was gonna i was gonna say i will let the audience decide whether there was actually a debate that occurred there i i you know yeah um i i do want to say folks to go check out our youtube channel make sure you subscribe um <clears throat> i give the i get the link is there at a, a short link there is if you're watching on on the channel, then right now, then fine. <clears throat> but if you go to bitly, B-I-T-L-Y dot com slash Y-T-S-F-E, it's short for YouTube Striving for Eternity. Go check out the channel. We just put out a, um, a video. Uh, basically, it was um, uh, Justin Peters, myself, and um, Jim Osmond. And we basically discussed, well, Beth Moore. We've discussed Beth Moore's recent comments that she made um, with Justin Peters. And it was uh, something you want to listen to, especially if you have friends or family or yourself who listens to Beth Moore, because she basically came out in defending the indefensible. She came out defending what is anti-biblical uh, and she does it in a way that she tries to pretend like she's debating a, or taking a biblical position while she defends the unbiblical one. And so you definitely want to go to the YouTube, check that out, check out the rap report podcast on the Christian podcast community. Um, you can find that at striving or Christian podcast community.org. But any, on any app that you have, you can, Subscribe to Rap. That's Rap with two P's. Rap Report. Um, this week on Sunday, we will drop an episode that Jamal Bandy of the Prescribed Truth podcast and I did dealing with uh, Amber Geiger, this Dallas police officer who uh, was sentenced to ten years in prison. There's been some uh, 
talk about racism and injustice with it. We're going to address that. But then we're going to deal with something that in all the conversations and all the media, in all the podcasts I've heard on it, uh, I have a very different take than anybody else on what may be the cause of some of this problem. And I think it's something we that we as a nation must address. And it's not going to be one of racism. It's not going to be one of justice, injustice type things. But in a way, it could be injustice. But what really caused this? People are trying to say it's racism. There's something else that I think caused this. And you're going to need to listen to the Andrew Rapport's rap report to hear that. So make sure you subscribe. Uh, so no show next week. But the weekend after, uh, we're going to uh, we're going to be back on doing another post debate. Uh, I'll put it up earlier so you guys can watch that and we can discuss that. Um, hopefully, there'll be a lot more of you that come in for discussion. So until next week, remember to strive to make today an eternal day for the glory of God. We'll see you next time.